Luke 15, verse 1, uh, going to verse 10. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost." Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you have been paying uh, half attention, nay, uh, one quarter attention over the past couple of weeks, you will have noticed that the state of Mississippi is in permanent party mode. Um, that there is a celebration happening, everyone is excited. Right now, sometime in this hour, the coaches poll will be released and it is quite likely that we will find Mississippi State at the top of it. And also, uh, even my Ole Miss friends, I'm even even, celebrating with you. I so rarely do this, but I'm happy for you too. It's It's one big celebration over the last couple of weeks. Um, if you were happened to be in Starkville last night, uh, as I was, there were people everywhere. It was packed. Uh, Sonny said that he, uh, Sonny Boyd said that he waited in that line like an hour at the Chick Fil A. I mean, it was absolutely a celebration all over. Now I want you to imagine this. Say you were on a business trip from I don't know. Uh, Abu Dhabi or Luxembourg or someplace where they don't have uh, football and you showed up in Starkville last night and you just wanted a chicken sandwich and you go uh, to Chick you want to go to Chick-fil-A and you find yourself in this ridiculous traffic jam in the middle of rural Mississippi and you're wondering what is going on and then you you show up there and it is packed and you are confused Because a party has broken out and you don't understand it. You don't know what's going on. And you're probably more than a little annoyed because all you want to do is get a bite to eat. All you want to do is live your life. And all of these people are up to some annoying party that you don't understand. The story that Jesus tells is uh, in these parables is something like that. Jesus has started off this party. He's going and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, it says. And at the end of the parable, it says that there is rejoicing in heaven that is going in concert with what Jesus is doing on earth. There's a party that is breaking out. But some people don't understand why the party's happening. It's confusing to them and maybe even a little bit annoying. And in fact, they have good reason to be annoyed. Because the people that are invited to this party are not likable characters. 
Uh, it says that Jesus is going and dining with tax collectors and sinners. Now, you might remember from last week that we mentioned tax collectors, so this is just a refresher. Now, of course, nobody likes paying their taxes. No one likes giving money to the IRS, but this is more than that. It's not just that uh, these are unlikable you know, IRS agents or something like that. The issue is that if you were a tax collector in first century Galilee or Judea, you're collecting taxes to pass them on to the Roman government. And you have very likely betrayed your neighbors. You have, uh, you, you have uh, a lot of times what tax collectors would do is they'd charge a little extra and they'd get, the, they'd get that money and they would you know, send the rest back to the Roman government, but they would take a little bit off the top. And so to be a tax collector is to think of yourself before everyone else. It's to take advantage of your neighbors. It's even to be a traitor to your people. Jesus is going and dining with some very unlikable figures. It says also that Jesus is dining with sinners. And a lot of times when we think about sinners in the Bible, I think what people have in their mind is sort of poor people who are taken advantage of and you know, they don't even know how to do the right things, and, and so we call them sinners. And certainly Jesus calls us to care for the poor. That's all through the Gospels, it's all through uh, the Epistles, and of course it's all over the Old Testament. But Jesus talks about the poor all the time, and the Gospels talk about the poor all the time, they don't call them sinners. I think that these aren't those kind of people. When it talks about sinners, you should recognize these guys are throwing a party. Nowhere in the Gospels is Jesus depicted as ever having anyone over to his house. He's on the road, he's preaching. So if he's dining with somebody, he's going to their house. And he goes to tax collectors' houses, and he goes to the houses of prostitutes. So he's going to the houses of these sinners. He's going to people who have evidently the means to throw a get-together. They have enough money to have a party. These aren't poor, downcast people. These aren't the folks who are the poorest of the poor. These are people who have a little bit of money to celebrate. In fact, I think they might be the kind of folks that you might... Uh, say if you are lower class or middle class and you look over at the folks having a party at the country club and you say, those rich sinners, I mean, they think they've got it all, but they, you know, really they're up to no good. Uh, or, and then I mean nothing against fraternities here, but if you're in a college and you're not in a fraternity and you look over at the big party happening at the nice house and you say, yeah, but those people are just a bunch of sinners. And, and they're people that you don't like, that you don't like. And so Jesus, though, he's going and he's eating with those people. He's associating with the people that we don't want to associate with. You know, I grew up in Clinton, uh, around Jackson, and Clinton has a rivalry with Madison. And Madison is, the, is per capita the richest uh, town in Mississippi. And we all hated Madison because we thought that they were uppity. And we thought that, you know, well, yeah, they're, but they're really just a bunch of jerks. There's a bunch of sinners over there. But we're, we're good salt-of-the-earth people in Clinton. I think when Luke is telling us about Jesus going and eating with these sinners, that's the kind of people that he has in mind. And you know, we're kind of comfortable when we think of Jesus hanging out with poor people because that seems really nice. But we don't like it when Jesus goes and hangs out with people that we don't like. But I don't think we've heard the gospel until we've heard that God's love is extended to people that we're not comfortable with. That God's love is extended to people that we don't really even like that much. Because if we don't hear that, then we can't hear that 
God's love is extended even to us who haven't followed God. So this is a rowdy group that Jesus is hanging out with. It's people that we don't even necessarily like that much. To explain what he's doing, Jesus tells a couple of stories. And the first goes like this. It says, he says, who doesn't, when you have a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, uh, who wouldn't go and leave the 99 sheep in the wilderness and go after the one who's gone astray? And we think, you know, because we've heard this parable, I was like, oh, of course, that's what Jesus does. Jesus goes after the lost sheep. Um, but if you think about it and you're sitting there in Jesus' audience and you say, wait, you left the 99 sheep in the wilderness to go after the one that was lost? That doesn't make an awful lot of sense. I mean, you're putting the other 99 sheep at risk. Why would you risk losing those to go after this one sheep that appears to be of not much consequence? This is sort of like when I was in, uh, I think, fourth, fifth grade, I got my first compound bow, and I wanted to see how far I could shoot an arrow, so I, you know, reared back and let, let that thing fly, and I just shot it out into the pasture, and, you know, it landed somewhere out there, and I couldn't find it. So I had a bright idea. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'll get another arrow, and I will, uh, maybe some of you have done this too, and I will t- go in the same place and assume the same position, and I will shoot it, and I will follow this one, and I'll see where it lands. And of course, what I wound up with was two lost arrows. <laughs> um, what G, the, the scenario doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. You don't leave 99 sheep at risk. It says they're left in the wilderness to go after this one other sheep. That's counterintuitive. This is a very strange story. Now, the thing about this sheep that's lost, from what we can tell, there's nothing special about this sheep. It's just another sheep. Now, a couple of centuries after the Gospel of Luke is written, there's another book called the Gospel of Thomas. It's just a collection of Jesus' sayings. It is not the Bible. It has some pretty terrible stuff in it, actually. It was written by a heretical sect of people called Gnostics. Uh, And we can talk about the Gnostics another day. But they reinterpreted this parable, and they said the reason that Jesus went after the one sheep is that it was the biggest. You know, this is the special snowflake sheep. You know, you're, you're a special snowflake and you're, you're not like, you know, all the other ones. Jesus goes after this sheep because it's special. And the Gnostics thought that they were special because they had insider knowledge about God. But that's not the story that Jesus tells here in the Bible. Because this, this story, it's just another sheep. It's good as the, the 99. They're all on the same, you know, it's, if anything, this sheep is not the brightest sheep because it's run off from the rest of the sheep. You know, this is... Why go after this sheep? Why risk the other ones to go get this one? It doesn't make an awful lot of sense. The reason, though, the reason I think that Jesus tells this strange story about going after the one that's lost is because the idea is that the party can't be complete unless everyone is included. The, the sheep can't have a celebration unless all of the sheep are there. Throughout the Old Testament and in a fair portion of the New Testament, God is spoken of as the shepherd of Israel, the shepherd of his people. You probably know the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, David, when he's called to be Israel's king, 
He's just a shepherd boy. And so to be a shepherd of the people becomes an image of what a good king does. And so Jesus, in bringing up this image of the shepherd, he's bringing to mind an image of how God himself operates and how Jesus as the true king, as as the Messiah, as the anointed one, operates. He goes after the lost sheep to make sure that all the sheep are included. Um, In the Old Testament, too, it is we, the lost people of God, who are referred to as the sheep. Um, Psalm 103 says, We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And in Psalm 199, 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. And then in Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And we Christians have, have taken Isaiah 53 to be an image of what Jesus does for us. We like sheep have gone astray. But God comes to us when we have gone astray to bring us back into the fold. Because what God wants is for everyone to be included in his kingdom. And the grace of God is extended to everyone, even the tax collectors and sinners that we don't want to like. Even the people that we don't want to be in the kingdom. You can't have the celebration unless everyone has been invited. So as with the sheep and the shepherd, so with this woman and the coin. Uh, now, in this scene, the, the woman has lost one of her ten silver coins. And a silver coin, it's a, it's a drachma here, it's uh, worth about a day's wage. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of money, but it's not, this isn't life-changing money right here. It's a, you know, it's a, a middling sum of money. It's not chump change, it's a little something, but it's not going to make or break you. But yet this woman, in this story, It says, one of the coins is lost. She lights a lamp and goes and search for it. She sweeps the floor until she's found this coin. And then she invites all of her neighbors to come and have a celebration with her to celebrate the finding of this coin. It's a counterintuitive scene. Just like the sheep that didn't matter. What's so special about this sheep? There's nothing special about this coin in particular. But the celebration happens when everyone who's meant to be included is included. There is a little bit of a different spin in this story, though. Because here it says this in uh, verse 9. The woman says, Rejoice with me, For I have found the coin I had lost. Hmm. So if God is the shepherd, and if God is this woman who's in search of the coin, this sort of implies that God loses the coin. That should make us uncomfortable. Because how can it be that God would lose anyone? And in fact, that's the criticism that Uh, So many atheists lodge against Christianity. How could a good God, a God who knows everything, a God who loves everyone, and a God who's all-powerful, allow for anyone to be lost? How could bad things happen to good people? How could God allow something like that to happen? How could God let any coin go astray? How could God let any sheep wander off from the fold? Why would God allow that? Why do bad things happen? 
And what's so interesting about this story is that it doesn't answer that question. It doesn't say why God allows that to happen. Now, I uh, think that the reason that God allows that to happen is that God wants us to be his people and not his robots, that he allows us to respond to him. He hasn't made us to just be, you know, uh, yeah, we have a good, we got a good robot there. Good job. Yeah. You know, it's not just, uh, he wants us to have a genuine relationship and he, we can't have a genuine relationship if he just controls everything that we do. But that's not the focus of the parable here. The parable doesn't focus on why the sheep got lost or why the coin got lost. It focuses on God taking responsibility for the lost. You know that word responsibility should remind us that the word response is right in there. When we are lost, God responds to that reality. And God searches for us like this woman goes and searches out this coin, searching diligently for us. The character of God is revealed not in the fact that people get lost, but in the fact that God searches us out and doesn't give up until he has called us back and has found us. That God seeks and seeks and seeks and seeks so that we might be found in him. That's what this parable imagines. That's who this parable imagines God to be. Now, something else kind of interesting here. You know, uh, at the end of both of these parables, Jesus says that these stories are about repentance. In verse 7, it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner, uh, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then in verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But that's a little weird because... Um, I haven't seen a lot of repenting going on in this story. Uh, the sheep doesn't repent. Sheep can't repent. Sheep are kind of dumb, uh, and they don't feel sorry when they've done wrong. Sheep don't repent. And coins, they don't repent either. Coins just lay there. A coin does nothing. It's just there. A coin can't make decisions. A coin can't realize that it's done wrong and come back to God. The coin doesn't do anything. And in the stories themselves... It's not the sheep who says, oh, you know what? I've done wrong. I need, to, I need to make my way back to the rest of the sheep. And the coin doesn't wise up and say, ah, get back in the on the table with the rest of the coins. It's the shepherd who goes and pursues the sheep. And the shepherd picks up the sheep and puts it on his shoulders to carry it back. And the sheep who's gone astray might I imagine that the sheep is struggling, especially when the sheep finds out that they're going to a party because the sheep's probably thinking, uh-oh, am I, <laughs> I going to be on the dinner table? Uh, the sheep doesn't do any repenting. The shepherd comes after the sheep. And the coin doesn't do any repenting. The woman goes after the coin. And in this strange image, I think it should tell us a little something about what repentance is. A lot of times in Christianity, we think of repentance as being something like, I realized I've done wrong, I feel sorry about it, I go and I have a good cry, and I tell God I'm sorry, and, uh, and, then, and then everything's okay. But so often what happens is that we feel sorry, and we come to God, and we apologize, and we just go and do the same things over and over and over again. And we just get in the cycle of feeling guilt and coming to God, and feeling guilt and coming to God, and feeling guilt and coming to God, and no change has actually happened. Well, that's not repentance. It's not repentance at all. A lot of times when we talk about repentance, we have in mind a person feeling sorry for what they've done, but that's not what it actually means. 
Paul will say in 2 Corinthians uh, 7.10 that godly sorrow leads to repentance. So the sorrow and repentance aren't the same thing. Sorrow can lead to repentance, and that can be a great thing. That can be a great moment of transformation. But the sorrow itself isn't repentance. Repentance is literally, it just means metanoia. It means to change your mind, to change your mind, to be reoriented in what you're doing, to stop doing one thing and start doing another. For repentance, the proof is in the pudding. Repentance isn't about your emotional state, though certainly there is an emotional state that can come with it. Repentance (coughs) is about stopping from one course of action and going and doing another. And so when we repent, I think so often we do it with mixed motives. We don't come to God with a pure heart. We haven't gotten ourselves right and sort of said, okay, I I, I fixed myself, now I'm going to come to God. It doesn't work that way. God meets us when we're not even trying to repent. We're not even yet feeling sorry. The sheep doesn't feel sorry that it's gone astray. The coin doesn't feel sorry that it's, it's on the floor. But God comes to those who are lost so that they can be reincorporated in the community. And then a transformation can start to happen. Then God can start to make something out of this mess that we have gotten ourselves into. You know, we come to God with mixed motives. We don't come when we've gotten ourselves, you know, in our suit and tie, and now we look good, and we're going to come and, and be Christians now. It's not the way it works. God comes to us when we're desperate, when we don't want to respond, when we don't want to do right. And that's where the transformation starts. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, in the 18th century, there was a sailor uh, who, his father was a sailor, he goes out on his boat uh, with his father um, in the Mediterranean when he's a, a young teenager, uh, even preteen, I think he started when he was 11, goes out, is on the boat a few years, comes back home, uh, is off on a trip to visit, uh, to, to visit someone, and on the way, he is captured and pressed into the British Navy. That's how they did it back then. That's how they drafted people. It's one of the major uh, complaints that we had going into uh, the War of 1812, but that's a story for another day. You know, the British would take, officials would take someone and say, okay, you're in the Navy now, off to sea with you. So they get this guy and they send him off to sea. And uh, he is not a good sailor. Well, he adopts some of the habits of sailors, uh, drunkenness, and uh, he's said to have the foulest mouth uh, that one ship's commander has ever heard in his life. This guy would write poems about the ship's captains, making fun of them in very crude language, and uh, got himself in trouble constantly, was almost starved to death one time. At one point, uh, he has overstayed his leave, basically gone AWOL. They get him back and they flog him and they put him in chains. Uh, at this time, he's, he's, he's wound up on a slave ship and he winds up in the bottom of the slave ship with, with the slaves in chains like them. Well, they get to West Africa where this slave ship is going and the captain's so fed up with this guy that he just dumps him there. Leaves him in Sierra, what's now Sierra Leone. And he winds up himself becoming a slave in West Africa. Well, his father figures out that his son's missing when the, the ship gets back. And so he, he gets a friend to go and seek out his son, gets his son, and is hauling him, back, hauling him back to England. And on the way around the Irish coast, off uh, the coast of Donegal in Ireland, um, there's a big storm that comes up. 
And this young man in his 20s at this point uh, thinks that he's going to die. The ship's taking on water, and he realizes that he, his whole life is messed up. And he calls out to God. And he has this moment where he realizes that he needs to become a Christian. And so, there it starts. He, he sort of repents. He, he maybe kind of feels sorry. Uh, and, and he responds to God in that moment. He makes it through, makes it back to England. And he reforms a little bit. He uh, quits using such foul language, uh, so the story goes. And, but really, things don't change all that much for him. Because he goes back out, and eventually he becomes a, a captain on a slave ship. And this guy who's had this religious moment, has had this conversion experience, is still in the slave trade. Uh, and is still now actually a pretty important part of it, because he's a ship captain taking people back and forth across the Middle Passage. Well, as life goes on, he has a stroke. He leaves, uh, he leaves the, the, you know, the slave trade business and comes home. And slowly, slowly, uh, transformation starts to take place in his character. And eventually he becomes uh, an Anglican priest. He becomes a, you know, a minister in the Church of England. And he becomes this well-known preacher. People love hearing his sermons. They come to him uh, and they want to hear. They have to build an extra you know, deck kind of thing on the back of the church because so many people were coming to hear this guy's sermons. And uh, he just becomes this beloved figure. But still, still he hasn't fully repented of his actions when he was a young man and he was involved in slave trading. And it's not until he's in his 60s that he finally comes out as an abolitionist and, and advocates for the end of the slave trade in England. Not until then. And reflecting back on his life, he says that, you know, really, he didn't think he was a Christian, or at least not much of a Christian, for the first six or seven years after that conversion experience. That it was an important moment, that God started to transform him there, but God didn't just leave him there. God worked on him and worked on him and worked on him until he transformed his character. Repentance didn't come in that moment. Repentance came over a life lived, being called back to God from his sins. And it's that guy who was the young sailor with the foul mouth and the slave trader who wrote the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's John Newton. For John Newton, the party couldn't be complete until he was brought back into the fold. And then God started to work a transformation in his character, and it didn't happen overnight, but repentance brought him down a long road of discipleship. And the party can't be complete until the tax collectors and the sinners, who are apparently still tax collectors and sinners as Jesus is eating with them, until they are invited as well so that Jesus might start to do something in their lives. And the party isn't complete for us until we realize that we too are invited to what Jesus is doing so that Jesus can start to work a transformation in our lives. Not that we get ourselves cleaned up and you know get ourselves starched before we get ourselves washed and come to God in that way. But that God meets us where we are so that then we might begin the work of repentance. That's what Jesus is saying with these stories. 
there's a party that breaks out in heaven when one sinner repents. There's a party that breaks out in heaven because only, only when all of God's people are gathered together can the celebration truly take place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the many ways in which we have gotten lost. And we pray that you would open our eyes to those around us who are lost and in need of you. And Father, we come to you with so many mixed motives. Uh, We come to you sometimes in desperation. Sometimes we come to you wanting to look good in the eyes of our neighbors. But you take the very muddled mess of our lives and begin to work with us, and begin to change us, and begin to show us what repentance really means by those slow, sometimes, steps of becoming your people. Lord, we pray today that you would call us to repent anew, that you would call us to be the sheep, to be the coin that is found in you from righteousness that comes from you and not for anything, from anything that we can make up on our own. Lord, we are grateful for this and we pray to you in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.